Thanks for listening to the Refuel Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for a new episode. We're starting a series tonight um, called Haters Gonna Hate. And, you know, I found so many Haters Gonna Hate vines, you know, RIP vine. Um, I found so many, yeah, found so many Haters Gonna Hate vines. I'm gonna be like kind of just over the next couple of weeks for the series just showing you some of my favorites, and that was one of them. But, um, you know what I mean when I say hater blockers? You know, you got to put something on to block out the haters. And uh, you don't know? Oh, Brooklyn's got hers, yeah. Jesse has her, okay. So, you know, here, here's, the, here's the prevailing thought is, you know, the, the idea that I'm just going to, in the words of somebody, a very famous philosopher of our day, if somebody's going to hate, 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 I'm just gonna shake, 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 shake. Shake it off, you know? I'm just gonna shake off the hate. And a lot of people think that's what the Bible teaches also, and that's what Jesus teaches. Because you hear the the words of Jesus and he says things like this. Forgive because you've been forgiven. And he says things like, pray for your enemies. Well, I guess that means if somebody does me wrong, if somebody's gonna hate, 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 then I just need to shake, 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 and shake it off. And we get this idea that Jesus wants us to put these hater blockers on, spiritually speaking. And to be sure, Jesus says a lot about forgiveness. Jesus says a lot about loving people who don't love us and loving people who hate us. And that's a hard call, isn't it? That's a hard thing that he calls us to do. But some of you have done your best. You know, people have hurt you. People have done wrong to you. Um, People have said things that just cut at you. And, you know, you you remember that, oh, I'm supposed to put on my spiritual hater blockers and just shake it off. But I think if you're honest, some of the things that have been done to you and some of the things that you deal with when it comes to people who hate you, you've tried to shake it off. You've tried to put the hater blockers on. And guess what? <laughs> the haters are still hate, 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 hating, and you're still shake, 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 shaking. But as hard as you shake, you can't shake it off. Because some of the people that have hurt you are still walking the same hallways that you walk. Uh, some of the people who have done unkind things to you, they're still blowing up your Instagram. And they're still, you, you, you see them, and they're still in your life. So how are you supposed to continue to shake, 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 shake it off? We're doing a series on the imprecatory psalms, and I've had several people ask me, Matt, what in the world is an imprecatory psalm? Is that something I need to get a shot for to like vaccinate myself against? Like, what is an imprecatory psalm? Like, uh, and there, are, there are a handful of psalms. Some scholars believe seven. Some scholars believe 10 psalms that are in the Bible. When we think of psalms, we think of David strumming his harp, singing, bless the Lord, O my soul, floating on a cloud, but nestled, oh, I got to use that word again, in the, it's one of my favorite words, nestled in these, this book of Psalms. You know, there are 151 Psalms in the book of Psalms. They were $3 at Walmart. Um, Yeah, it's a souvenir now. You can sell it on eBay for 50 bucks. Um, Nestled in this book of Psalms that most of them are positive, encouraging, Caleb-type Psalms are seven to 10, depending on 
how you classify it, psalms in which David or whoever the psalmist that wrote the psalm is praying God's wrath and judgment on his enemies. Did you know that was in the Bible? Some of you guys are like, ooh, tell me more about these imprecatory psalms. How do you do that? How do you impregnate someone? I mean, not, never mind. That didn't, come out, that didn't come out right, and we're not talking about that tonight. That was a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, how, do you, how do you pray these? How do you pray these imprecatory psalms against me? Because I've got a list, and I know some of you have it. I've got a list of people that have done me wrong that I'd like to see God's wrath come down on them. Um, but then some of you, you may kind of echo, there are some people who have read these psalms and they think, well, surely, surely God would not put those kind of prayers and songs and psalms in the Bible because God is love. And Jesus said, you know, forgive and let go and love. And so they, they make a couple, they, they, they take one of two positions on it. First, there's some people, guys, just don't screw with the glasses if it's gonna cause you to be distracted, okay? Uh, there are some people who with these psalms, they say, well, these psalms could have been added later by other people and we're not gonna take that as God's inspired word. So you know, that's kind of dangerous, right? Picking and choosing based on your own human version of morality, what you agree or disagree with what God says. That's kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? But then there are some people who do this, and I think a lot of us do this. There's portions of the Bible that maybe we're at school and one of our friends who's an atheist or an agnostic kind of throws this verse at us and says, you say your God is loving, but what about Psalm 137.9, which we're gonna talk about tonight? And they're like, and you're like, oh, I don't know, and you just kind of avoid it. And some of us put our heads in the sand and try to pretend like these verses don't exist because they're hard to deal with. I would submit to you that A is incorrect, yeah, the Bible is God's inspired word. We talked about that last week. B is incorrect. You just can't put your head in the sand and pretend like these verses don't exist because here they are. Let me present to you option C. Let's, let's look at these verses and let's see what God has to say. And what you'll learn is uh, you can't argue that these verses are not Bible, that these verses are not scripture. Because A, you know, some people just want to ditch the whole, unhitch themselves from the whole Old Testament. And just say, oh, the New Testament's love. You know, the New Testament's kinder and gentler. The Old Testament, mean, you know? New, ver you know, New Testament, you know, lamb, you know? You know? Old Testament, like, I don't know, what's a fierce animal, you know? Um, honey badger. Honey badger. <laughs> and, but here's the problem. The New Testament quotes large passages of the Old Testament over 280 times. More specifically, the book of Psalms of the 200, 280 plus quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament, you follow me on that? 50% of them are from the book of Psalms. And of those 50% of the quotations that are in the book of Psalms, Jesus quotes the book of Psalms over 30 times in the Gospels. And of those quotes, would you know it? The verses that we're gonna look at tonight that are big problem verses for some people, Jesus quoted them word for word. I'll give you the references just in case you don't believe me, and there will be on the notes on the app. But Matthew 21, 43 through 44, Luke 19, 44, and Luke 20, 18. Jesus quotes this verse that is very difficult to deal with. Um, so we're gonna read a, a difficult passage of scripture to a lot of people, but you're gonna, 
You're gonna learn something about this, and here's what you're gonna learn, is that God has not forgotten about your pain. And that's gonna be kind of the big theme tonight, is that you, you try to shake, 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 shake it off, but God has not forgotten about your pain. So turn to Psalm 137. Uh, I gave out some uh, fill in the blanks again, because some of you really like that, so I'm just gonna kinda, if I can, keep doing it. Um, but look at Psalm 137. We're gonna read through it, and then I'm gonna have some splaining to do after we read this. Uh, so Psalm 137, just start in verse one. It's, it's eight verses long. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of its mouth if I don't remember you, if I don't consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, here it starts to take a turn here. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to the foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Woo. So, we were, we're going to get to verse nine, obviously. And like I said, I'm gonna have some explaining to do after reading this one. But as we look, we have to look at this passage and really understand what it means. And the first thing that we understand when we look at this passage um, is that this is a psalm. The psalms are a book of psalms. They were originally five books and they were brought together by the, um, by, by the prophet Ezra into one book of Hebrew praise. And this particular psalm, Psalm 137, is, a, is called, is, you know how music has different genres, right? You know, there's some genres we, genres we like, country. You know, some genres, you know, we really don't like, indie. Um, and, no, I don't know. And, and then there's some that are just heavenly, which is like 80s music. But, um, but you know, there are different genres of the Psalms, and this particular genre was the genre that was called a lament. Um, you may know that and be familiar with that because the book of Lamentations that's in the Bible is just a song full of sad songs, which is why sometimes we play that game. I don't know if you remember, we played the game, is it lament a Lamentation or is it a Taylor Swift lyric? You know, you remember when we played that game? We'll have to pull it back out because um, some of you know Taylor Swift more than you know your Bible, and that's a problem. Um, but uh, Need a little icy hot for that burn? Um, no. Um, but anyway, the genre is a lament. It's a sad song. And why were they sad? What were they writing about? What terrible event were they writing about that made them so sad? Well, this is a group of Jewish Levites who were priests in, in, in the southern Israeli kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem, and something happened to Jerusalem in 586 BC. They were invaded by the Babylonian army by King Nebuchadnezzar. And God had warned Israel that if they didn't repent and turn to him, he would take his hand of protection away from Israel. Um, but they decided that they were big and they were bad. They could take care of themselves. So they thumbed their nose at God and they said, we can do it ourselves. So God said, okay, yeah, you're on your own. Well, they weren't on their own very long before the nation of Babylon, which was a huge empire, descended on Jerusalem. Jerusalem was fortified by like city walls and city gates. They shut the gates so the Babylonians couldn't come and invade them. So what the Babylonians did was they put them under siege. 
If you're familiar with the way war was fought um, back then, uh, they surround, the Babylonians surrounded the city, wouldn't let anyone in and wouldn't let anyone out. But here's the problem. You know, this is a long time ago, this is 586 BC. They didn't have running water um, and all their food came from outside the city gates. You know, so they can't get food in and they can't get waste out. What do you think the situation was like in Jerusalem after a couple days? To make matters worse, what the Babylonians would do is they would take like live animals, like from the pastures outside the city gate, they'd take cows and horses, they would put them on catapults and they would, I'm not kidding, they would catapult them over the city walls so that they would land in the middle, like in the city square and obviously die, right? And they would sit in the city square and rot and become stinking corpses. So you'd be walking down the city of Jerusalem, there would be sewage running everywhere, no food, rotting animal corpses. Eventually, you know, the, the Babylonians broke through the walls. Once they broke through the walls, they invaded the city. When they invaded the city, the first place they went was the temple that the, the Jewish people had dedicated to God. It was like the most prestigious place in Jerusalem. They ra- raided the temple and they sacked all of the valuable things. Second Kings chapter 25 tells you about all the things that they stole from the temple and took back to, uh, to Babylon as plunder. So they stole all the sacred things. You know, they like pulled a Nicholas Cage, stole the Declaration of Independence. You know, they stole all the things that mattered to, to, to Judah as a nation, as, an, as a country. So they took all those things, then they leveled they leveled the temple. You know, imagine if, you know, if all in like one fell swoop, somebody leveled the White House, leveled the, um, the Capitol building, just all the landmarks in, our, in D.C. that represent our governmental power, they were flattened. Then when they were done with that, um, they took 10,000 of the, lead, the, the richest, most influential people in Jerusalem as captives and took them back to Babylon. All the religious leaders, all their political leaders, they took them back to Babylon because the thought was if there's no leadership in Jerusalem, they'll always stay under you know, Babylonian captivity and Babylonian control. They took the king of Judah at the time. They took him and his sons back to Babylon and when they got him back to Babylon, they, they, they tied the king up and they executed his sons right in front of him and as soon as his sons were executed, they plucked his eyeballs out. This is how brutal they were, so that the last thing that he would remember seeing was his sons being murdered. The, peop- the, the soldiers, the Babylonian soldiers who were left in the city of Jerusalem then enslaved every able-bodied man in Jerusalem to do their own work, to do like work in, on behalf of the Babylonian, you know, Babylonian people. The, the women were either also sold into slavery or they were sold into sex slavery. Then all of the people who were too sick to work, too young to work, or too old to work were taken outside the city and slaughtered. And then, to, and this is their own way of twisted thinking, to prevent any people from rising up, any, any like young people to grow up and resent the Babylonian empire and, and, and revolt against them. They took all of the infants and the toddlers, they took them outside the city gates and they, this is really disgusting and sad, but they, they dropped them on top of rocks to kill them. That was the, you, you want to know why they wrote this lament? You, know, you want to know why they cried? It's because this. To make matters worse, they had an arch enemy that was local to them, and it was the Edomites. 
You know, we, when, I, when I think of like a local arch enemy, I think of WVU. I mean, I don't know how many are WVU fans in here, but we have an altar here that you can come repent at any time. But, uh, you, know, you, know, you, know, you know, think about like how Marshall always, you know, you know, we, you know, it, 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 things are a little dicey. You know, I'll just leave it there. So the Edomites, they trace their lineage back to Abraham just like the Jewish people did. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. The, the, the Jewish people were descendants of, of, of Jacob. There was, for generations, for a thousand years, there was fighting and there was back and forth. Well, guess what happens? When Jerusalem is getting invaded and all these almost unspeakable, terrible things are happening in Jerusalem to the Jewish people, the Edomites find out about it. So they're like, let's pop some popcorn. You know, just like some of y'all when drama starts on, on Twitter or something, you're like, mm, I'm gonna pop some popcorn and watch this, you know? They, they were popping popcorn, proverbially speaking. They went down and they started like egging on the people. Yeah, egg, they, they were like egging on the Babylonians. You're like, go get them, you know, level them. The Jewish people who were able to escape and ran away from the Babylonians are like, hey guys, it's okay, we'll go get them. They went and rounded up all the Jewish people who escaped and brought them back to the Babylonians. Like, here, here's another one, here's another one. Make sure to sell them into slavery. You know, make sure to kill them. You know, make sure to, and, and they, they said they sat there and laughed while Jerusalem was being destroyed. So you know, we kind of have two sets of haters here that, that caused this lament. You had the, 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 the Babylonians who came in and invaded and were brutal and murderous and terrible. And then you had the Edomites who came in and they, they, they laughed at Israel's misfortune. They laughed at Judah's misfortune. So against that backdrop, this lamentation or this, this song was written that was a prayer to God. And as we look at that, and as we kind of look at some of those details, um, it's sad, isn't it? I mean, can you, you, we, it's hard for us to kind of put ourselves in that position where we can think of what that would be like to experience. Um, but then I think about you, and I think about, you know, some people write off the hurt that you've experienced or things that have happened to you that have been difficult for you, but you've been dealt some blows by people in your life too. So just as the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, they wrote this lament and they learned something from it and they expressed to God, you can learn something from this lament and we're just gonna kind of, you know, we're, last week we talked about soap. Remember, we talked about how to study the Bible. You start with scripture then you observe and you apply and you pray it back. We're just gonna follow that outline. So we're gonna make a couple observations about this, about this chapter, which is a very short chapter, and I think you'll find them to be very helpful to you um, if you've tried all you can to shake, 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 shake off the haters in your life and you just, you can't get that image out of your head. So the first thing that we see um, is that you can be real <laughs> around God. It's okay to be real with God. You know, sometimes I'm afraid we feel like we have to put on one, you know, we're always changing our masks. You know what I mean? We're always, we, act, we act one way at church, we act one way at school, and then we think we have to act a particular way around God. But look at the way that the Israelites, these Levites, these priests express themselves to God. Uh, look at the emotion here. I, I kind of circled some of the words that had to do with the emotion. So if you, you, know, you kind of have your Bible, look at some of these words. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept. They cried. You know, when was the last time you cried? 
when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. As a Levite, one of your jobs was to sing praise songs to God in the tabernacle or in the temple all the time. So it was who they were. You know, some of you think of, you know, you're a baseball player or you're a singer or you're a, you, you, you're a musician. That was their essence. That was who they were. And they hung it up because they didn't have a song left in them. Look at how they describe the people, the Babylonians. They say, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They, they didn't hold back any punches. Then they asked God to remember what had been done to them. You know, sometimes we think that we have to approach God in this particular way where we have to pretend like everything's okay and we have to use all the right words and that we can't let God know that we're angry or we can't let God know that we're sad or we can't let God know that we, we, we're harboring some resentment towards others in, 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 in our life. But look at what they did. And that's the kind of the first, if you're filling in the blank, that's the first thing that we learn is that we can come boldly but not brashly to God's throne. Um, Hebrews chapter four says that, that, that we have access to God. You know, these Levites were special because they had this like special access to God because you learn about this in, in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy with the Mosaic law. God gave these Levites special privileges to which they would represent the nation of Israel to him. So they would confess sins on behalf of the nation of Israel and they would take prayers on behalf of the nation of Israel to God. So they were like the mouthpieces. They were the communicators on behalf of Israel to God. They were the priests. The Levites who wrote this, they were called priests. Well, something happened when Jesus died on the cross and in Hebrews chapter four, it t tells us about this. It talks about how Jesus, when he died on the cross and his blood hit the mercy seat of God, that we became priests. That we no longer have to confess our sins to someone else who will confess our sin to God. Jesus is now the high priest, and the Bible says now there's one mediator between God and people, and it's Jesus. So just like these Levites, they had special access to go pour their heart out to God. That special access through Jesus, through the cross, has been granted to you. So when we read this and we read the way the Levites talk to God, we realize that we have that access to, to talk to God in a very intimate way, in a way that yeah, maybe we, we, we feel like we shouldn't talk to God or we'd be afraid to talk to somebody else that way. We can talk to God that way. That doesn't mean we can waltz into a room and you know I've heard people call Jesus their homeboy and all this stuff. And it doesn't mean we can be flippant and we can be brash. You know, we're entering the presence of God, but we have access to the presence of God because of Jesus. So it's okay to be real with God. Drew, that was the next slide, by the way, is that we can... We can come boldly but not brashly to God's throne. We also look, these psalmists didn't have any personal vengeance in their life. They weren't asking God, yeah, they, they, weren't, they, they weren't taking up a sword to go kill these people. They were waiting on God to do what God was gonna do. And that kind of dovetails into the next kind of thing that we notice is that the psalmists, these Levites, they were concerned about God's cause and not their own. So that even though this was something that happened very deeply and very personally to them, their main concern here was that God's name was being blasphemed, that God had turned into a laughing stock among the Babylonians because his chosen people had been decimated and they were concerned about God's glory. So you could be concerned about that too because you're a child of God. Um, so what, that, it's okay to be real with God. You know, so, sometimes when, when, when we have this, like, when we're in front of people and we see the people who hurt us and we see, we just, in, in our head, it's replayed over and over what happened to us or what was said to us, we can go to God 
we can pour our heart out to him. The next thing that we, that we learn, and this is, this, is, this is a big one, is that God remembers. This is a central theme in this passage. Um, I've counted five times in this, in this chapter the, either the word remember or the word forget. So this concept of remembering and forgetting and remembering and forgetting is very heavy in this, in this verse and, or this chapter. A couple weeks ago, when we, well, a little while ago, we did our Hot Topics series, and we did talk about depression. We talked about Psalm chapter 3. Remember, there's a big butt in there, and that was kind of like the hinge that swung the prayer upward where they turned their focus to God. Verse 7 here is kind of one of those hinges where their prayer stops looking at what happened to them, and it starts looking at God, and it's hinged by this word, remember. It says, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. You know, there are a lot of people who will tell you, you know, when something has happened to you and you've been hurt, well, you just need to get over it. You just need to shake it off. You just need to move on. You just need to realize that it really wasn't that bad. And everybody else is, up here, guys, up here. Everybody else has moved on from what happened, but you haven't. And you feel like everybody else has forgotten what's happened to you. But guess what? God remembers. Uh, the first thing that you, and you're filling the blanks is that God remembers your pain. You want to talk about verse 9, <laughs> where it says, Happy is the one who takes the infants of Babylon and dashes them against the rocks. Uh, this is a poetic device. Yeah, I, a lot of, most scholars believe this was a poetic device, and I'm not going to be able to say it right. I wrote it down, okay? So I can say it right. And it's a poetic device called synecdoche. Synecdoche. You ever heard of that? Any of you really smart people? It's a poetic device called synecdoche in which one small event is representative of the big event. Most of you don't remember this. You're a little too young, but I was a high schooler when 9-11 happened. And you know, there was this one thing that I remember seeing that I could just couldn't get out of my head, and it was the sight of someone who had jumped out of one of the Twin Towers building, and it was this zoomed in on this person, and I just, their arms were flailing as they were falling like 80 stories down to their death. And you know, there were all these terrible images that were not, but that was, the, that was the image that I just could never get out of my head when I thought of 9-11. So when somebody says to me, 9-11, I think of that person who thought it better to jump out of a, yeah, 80 stories than to be burned alive by that, that the fire. To the Israelites, to these Levites, the one image, and I'm not trying to be graphic or gruesome or cruel here, but so we can understand, you know, we, we need to understand why this is in here. The one image that they could not get out of their head that came to be representative of what happened to them on that terrible day was the image of seeing the babies of their, their nation, the babies of their city being brutally killed. I mean, that's just something you can't unsee. Is there something in your life, like an event that is representative of the hurt that happened to you? There's something that's said to you that you can't unhear. There's something that's done to you that you can't unfeel. There's something you saw you can't unsee. And everybody else has moved on. Everybody else forgets it. And, and even if they could remember it, they weren't there. and They don't know what it was like to be you. God remembers your pain. God remembers. When everybody else forgets, God remembers. God didn't just remember their pain. God remembered his promises. God didn't forget his promises. Before this, in, okay, so this was written in 536 BC. 
This event happened in 586 BC. So this was written 50 years after the event happened. So think about that. They still can't get over this event 50 years after it happened, which I can understand. In between the time the event happened and in the time that this was written, Isaiah and Jeremiah, under inspiration of God, made two prophecies about Babylon. And here's what the prophecies in a nutshell said. Both of them said something very similar. And it said this, Babylon, because of how brutal you were, the measure of your brutality towards the people of Israel will be exacted upon you by another nation. God said that. It was written down. So here are two things to remember about verse 9. First off, this verse 9 was symbolic, it was emblematic of what had happened to Israel. It's the one thing they couldn't unsee. The second thing is God had already made this promise. So they weren't just out of the blue saying, hey, you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see some Babylonian kids killed. What they're saying is God told us that the Babylonians would get what they gave. And we're going to hang our hats on God's promises. Because it feels like the person that hurt them, the people that hurt them, were getting off scot-free. You ever know how that feels when the person that hurts you get off scot-free and you're sitting there dealing with the pain? They're holding on to this promise that God is not just a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. The next thing is God didn't forget his plan. God had a plan for Israel. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 talks about God purposed to bless all of the nations in the world through the nation of Israel, which was a nation that at that time now didn't exist because the Babylonians came and decimated them. They held on to God. God's promise that God would bless the world through them. And God came through on that promise. By the way, when Jesus came to the earth, a Jewish person died on the cross, and now we're all blessed because of Israel, because of Jesus. So God also has a plan for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, verse 29, it talks about how God will work everything for our good in accordance to his plan. So even when it doesn't seem like God has a plan, even when it doesn't seem like if he does have a plan, it got derailed somewhere, they believe that God has a plan and God has not forgotten his plan for your life just because of what happened to you. So then we need to keep moving so we can get out on time. The third thing, Jesus is where God's love and God's justice meet. You know, one, one thing we need to learn, you know, next week is going to be very practical. It's going to be actually how to pray these imprecatory psalms, you know, how to pray psalms that ask for God's wrath. So you definitely want to be here next week. Um, but before we kind of get into that, we, we need to understand some of, the, some of the caveats here. And the first is, as we're looking at this, is that we, there's, the Bible leaves no room for us to take personal vengeance on someone. We, we learn actually that when we do that, we're crowding God out of the situation. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Says God, it says to leave room for God's wrath, and God says it's mine to avenge, I will repay. So, so nowhere in this psalm or in any of the imprecatory psalms do we find someone saying or telling us that we need to go get revenge for ourselves. Revenge is something that's left to God. The next thing is God gives people the responsibility to administrate justice. So, God created this way in which justice could be administered on the earth in the absence of his physical presence, and he gave that administration to government on earth. Um, You see that he gave Israel the the authority to administrate justice as their nation. In Romans chapter 13, it tells us as Christians, as believers, how we're supposed to respond to people who are in authority and that how they, even though, I think we can all admit criminal justice system isn't perfect, right? You know, we have a guy at the mall who's just minding his own business, got accused of something and was in jail for two days, you know, so obviously we got some issues, you know, but, but, but God gives us this way in which we can pursue justice while we're here on earth. But finally, finally, Jesus is going to bring 
ultimate justice. Jesus came as a lamb the first time he came. But when he comes again, he's not going to be coming as a lamb. He's going to be coming as a lion. That's how he's pictured coming. When Jesus came as a lamb the first time, we we can read the, the historical accounts of when he walked the earth. He suffered and died on a cross on behalf of our sins. He was our sacrifice. But what happened after Jesus died? He rose again, right? We learned about that on Easter. We don't talk about much about what happened to Jesus after he died except for the fact that he rose again. But a lot of big things happened to Jesus after he rose again. After he rose again, he went back up to heaven. What happened after Jesus went back up to heaven? Did he just find an apartment to chill for a while? It says that God exalted him to the highest place and seated Jesus at his right hand, God, at the God the Father's right hand. In, in Hebrew culture, the right hand was meant to represent authority and justice. So Jesus is sitting in the position of the one who is the arm of God's justice now. He was the arm of God's love, still is the embodiment of God's love, but now Jesus is, Jesus is the administrator of God's justice. And when Jesus comes back, so th- this is the, our picture of Jesus should not be the lamb now. He's the lion. He's sitting at the right hand of God, and when he comes back, boom, his feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives, and that mountain is going to split into him and become a valley just by the fact that his feet hit it. And he's going to judge all the nations based on the way that they treated Israel and the way they treated his children, and there will be for a thousand years not just figurative justice on earth. Jesus will be sitting on earth giving perfect justice. So some of you, you, you love seeing Jesus as the one who died on the cross, and that's, we should never forget that. I'm not trying to say we need to pick and choose, but what I'm saying is some of you who have been hurt, you need to see Jesus not just as your savior, but as your vindicator. Not just as your lamb, but as your lion. The one who one day will administrate justice to those who are haters. We don't glory in the fact that the haters are gonna be judged. And what we're gonna learn next week is we're supposed to do all we can to try to reach them with the gospel of Christ. But it frees us to love people, forgive people, and reach people when we know that God's got the justice thing figured out and that nobody goes scot-free. You say, well, Matt, what if they believe in Jesus? That means you know, they're kind of off the hook for all the terrible things they did to me. Ask Jesus if they're off the hook because he died for their sins. So Jesus is where grace and justice meet. Drew, will you go to the last slide so you, that you guys can fill in the blanks and we can get out of here? But there are three practical things that you can do. They're all P words. The first is some of you just need to pray to God with all your heart. You need to pour out your heart and your soul to God and give your hurt to God. And maybe that's you tonight. Um, the next thing is pursue justice when appropriate. You know, some of you, maybe you're like, well, Matt, you know, this, whole, you know, this whole thing tonight is about people who've been hurt. I haven't been hurt. Well, there's somebody in your life who's been hurt, and there's somebody in your life who you need to stick up for, who when they're bullied at school, uh, when they're getting flamed on, on Twitter, you need to stand up for them. God gives us that authority and that ability and that responsibility to administer justice when appropriate and pursue it when appropriate. And some of us need to stick up for those who have no one to stick up for them. And then the final thing is we need to trust in the promise of Christ's return. There's going to be one day, no more sorrow, no more hurting, no more pain. Jesus will physically be on the throne on this earth. So never forget that and trust in that, even when it seems like people are getting off scot-free. That was a little heavy, wasn't it? (laughs) 
Next week is just pretty much going to be a, continue, a continuation of this one, only in a very practical way to answer probably some of the questions that have popped up from what we talked about tonight, because this isn't a normal lesson. So we're going to pray. Um, we're going to get out of here. Um, and I want to put Carla in the middle tonight. We're so glad that Carla is able to be back with us tonight. Um, and we want to pray for her. We want to lift her up. Um, she's had a rough couple weeks. Um, so we're going um, to put Carla in the middle, and we're going to pray. And I'm going to close our lesson out with uh, prayer with Carla up here too. So let's just all go back here. Um, let's, let's, let's reach out and, and, and put our arms around Carla. Um, let her know how much we love her. And let's lift her up in prayer. So everybody come on in here. Join me. Come on in, guys. Don't be shy. Come on in. I'll give you guys time to make it in here, okay? Just come on in and pile around. Let's pray. Um, God, we love Carla so much. And, and, and God, I think about how you, um, um, long before this earth was even in existence, um, you knew um, you knew there'd be a girl named Carla and you had her life planned out and you created her. And there was, there was nothing when you created her that was hidden from your sight. Um, God, all her steps were foreordained by you that she would walk in them. And, 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 and God, she's grieving the loss of her father. She's asking a lot of questions, which is, is understandable, and she, she really needs to experience your peace um, and your comfort. Uh, so God, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit that lives inside her uh, will be stirred up within her to be the comforter who can comfort her in a way that only you can. Um, God, I pray that you'll empower us to, to be a shoulder to cry on, a, um, a, a, an arm to hug, a, a hand to, to lift up, uh, that we will be there for Carla, not just in our words, but in our actions and our deeds. Um, God, thank you that your plans for Carla are so incredible, um, that you have so much that you want to dis- of your glory that you want to display through her and display through her life. Um, so God, I pray that during this uh, very difficult time, she'll be able to kind of see around the corner of some of the things that you have in store for her, um, some of the ways in which you want her to walk. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Refuel Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to review the notes from this podcast, be sure to download the Refuel app from the App Store on any mobile device.